Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the word that you have given to us. We thank you for the truth that you have packed into it. We pray this morning, Lord, that as we open your word, you would find us to be receptive, responsive to your leadership in and through that word, that we might better reflect the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is February 2nd, Groundhog Day. I would like to point out that groundhogs are not trained meteorologists, so they probably really don't know how long winter's going to go. I don't want to ruin any image you might have about that, but nonetheless. And in February, we were marching our way towards April 15th, Tax Day. Everybody loves Tax Day. In fact, the very, the very notion of tax day makes people want to have celebratory events and big parties to say, oh yes, thank you, thank you, thank you for the opportunity to pay taxes. Yes. Actually, most of the time, for a lot of people, the mere mention of the date conjures up this horrible kind of queasy feeling in the pit of your stomach. This sense that even if I do everything exactly right, they still might find something that they think I've done wrong. A few years ago, Pastor Laura and I submitted our taxes, and I have to confess I use a a tax program to do that, um, which is a really, 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 really good program, and I, I love using it. The only weakness with that program is if you enter the wrong data, it spits out the wrong information. And so it happened that I had made a math error on our tax return that year, and I didn't know about it until I got that really thick, unpleasant-looking envelope from the Internal Revenue Service. I had made a $10,000 math error on our income tax return, and it turned out that my $10,000 math error in the IRS's way of doing math translated into us owing them $15,000. Taxes. It's a little, uh, it's really, really easy to get irritated, to get that queasy feeling at tax time. And that sense of irritation or queasiness gets us a little closer. It gives us a clue to kind of the popular mindset in the day and time of Jesus. And he's going to be confronted today in the passage that we, we deal with. He's going to be confronted with a really explosive question. And the explosive question surrounds this notion of whether people who are believers in God should pay taxes. And even more fundamentally than that, should Christians have a certain kind of attitude towards governmental enterprises? Jesus is going to boil this down and make it really simple for us. And of course, my job is to make it more complex than it really is. But nonetheless... Jesus is going to remind us that we have a responsibility to give to Caesar, the governing authorities, and to give to God what each of those is due. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, is on page 1575 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. And I'm going to read again, starting at verse 13 in chapter 12. Later they, now remember the they here, this is a group of people who have decided that Jesus needs to be killed. It's a disparate group of people, and we'll see a little bit of that in a minute. But that's who the they is. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right 
to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. First, we need to understand who the players are in this passage. This, this, this group of people, these two folks, categories of people mentioned here, the Herodians and Pharisees, these are really, really weird allies because most of the time, regularly, they were antagonists. They were at odds with each other. The Herodians were people who were representative of authority and they were in concert with the Roman authorities. That is, they were working in concert with the Roman occupying army and the Roman occupying governor just to try to keep things in hand. The Pharisees, however, were a group of people whose job it was to thoroughly understand the Jewish law, what we would call the the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and to be able to understand that and apply it to -to day-to-day life. They were enforcers, if you will, of Jewish law. These two folks, these two groups of folks, were constantly at odds with each other. The Herodians were willing to sacrifice elements of Jewish law, to appease the Roman authorities, the Pharisees were never satisfied when somebody tried to cut the corner on the implementation of Jewish law. If you think about the contemporary nation state of Israel, it has this disparate group of people there. There are Orthodox Jews. You often see them praying at the, at the Wailing Wall, at the old temple in Jerusalem. And they're, and they're very strict in their understanding of the living out of Judaism. And then there are, <clears throat> excuse me, more of what we might call uh, secular Jews, people who are Jewish by culture and ethnicity, but not necessarily practitioners practitioners of the law on a day-to-day basis. These are the people who have banded together to try to make sure that Jesus dies. This is how much Jesus had riled them up. So, the other thing we need to note about this before we get too far along in this passage is their motivation. Jesus sees it in verse 13. He says, hey, why are you coming to trap me? Sometimes it's hard to discern the motives of people with whom we interact, but here Jesus clearly discerned their motives. They want to trap Jesus, which makes their really smarmy question, uh, their little question prelude in verse 14, all the more grating Read it now with their understanding that they're here to try to trap Jesus to kill him. Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They didn't believe one single word of anything that they said there. They were setting him up to ask a very uh, challenging question. You know, as we move along through this life, we try to presume good motives with the people that we interact, that we have opportunities to interact with. And I try to do that. But I'm reminded in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, that Jesus says, as we cruise through life, we should be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. We should be, Christians should be the eyes wide open people to the reality of the world around us. So they've set Jesus up now with their smarminess and they give him their test question. 
verses 14 and 15. The question boils down to this. Hey, should we pay taxes or not? Now, as much as you and I, maybe not you, but I know certainly I, don't really appreciate the advent of April 15th and the opportunity to pay taxes, as much as I don't appreciate that, that doesn't even come close to the notion of these folks paying taxes in this day and this time. The tax they're talking about is what was called the poll tax or the head tax. It was the equivalent of one day's wages. So whatever you made during the course of a year, a day's worth of that went to support the Roman occupation. You get it? They're paying over a day's wages to fund the lives of the people walking around with the swords and spears who had arbitrary authority over them and could take them out and kill them at any time. This is the tax they're talking about. This tax was the object of focused hatred. And what they have tried to do here is set Jesus up for a huge fail. They are hoping that if Jesus responds to this question in a way that riles up the crowd, the crowd will come to their side and embrace their idea of wanting to take Jesus out. So, Jesus, of course, second person of the Trinity, God and man together, forever wise, forever discerning. He sees the hearts of these inquisitors, and he gives them a reply in verse 17. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. One of the things I love about reading the gospel accounts of the life and work and ministry of Jesus is the way he often leaves people with their jaws slack open, eyes wide, because he says exactly the right thing in a way that makes them realize they had been doing exactly the wrong thing. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to Caesar what he's due. Now, Caesar, of course, we don't have a Caesar in the United States of America. We don't have the Roman system of government, but we have, you heard Pastor Laura read those several passages that talk about the Christian's relationship with governing authorities. What do we owe those governing authorities? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says, we owe them prayer. And prayer with an end in mind. Prayer that there would be an atmosphere in which the gospel can spread. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. I urge, then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those authority, in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Several years ago, I was having some back trouble and the physician recommended that I get a massage. And so I went to the place where they dispensed the massages. I don't want to say massage parlor because that sounds wrong. But where they dispensed the massages. And the massage guy came in and he said, uh, I need you to take off your clothes. And I said, I don't think so. That is not happening. Um, I'm, a, I'm a kind of a private guy, and I'm just not going to do that. Thank you very much. I walked out. Well, what is prayer? Prayer is massage therapy for the heart. That's what prayer is. 
You, we can't be hateful towards someone we're praying for. Prayer prepares us for other issues in our relationship with the authorities and our relationship with the state. But it starts here. It starts here with praying. And really, this can apply to any area of our lives. But, you know, before we get angry with somebody, if we could pray, before we got frustrated with somebody, if we could pray, and if we made this prayer an ongoing, regular part of our lives that was really characterizing what we were doing on a day-to-day basis, our relationships with people would be different. So we owe prayer. We owe respect. Pastor Laura again read from Romans chapter 13, and uh, it says, Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. That's, a thing, that's an obligation we have. First Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. I was stationed in Colorado Springs, uh, Colorado, at uh, Peterson Air Force Base, which was the headquarters of the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, as we called it. And I was uh, in the the stairwell uh, one day, and I ran into the four-star general uh, there. I was a, a lieutenant colonel at the time. He outranked me, you know, by a couple of rungs. So I did this little dance while I tried to figure out if he was going up the stairs or trying to go out the door I was coming through. And I was trying to figure this out to defer to him just as a measure of respect. And I finally said, after you, sir. And he said, yes, after me. Christian author Ed Stetzer wrote a book called The Christians in the Age of Outrage. And he talks about how Christians are increasingly succumbing to the temptation to rant and rave, particularly on social media, and particularly in the political arena. Christians, we're not supposed to be known as ranters and ravers. So we owe respect. Further along, uh uh-oh, We owe submission to be part of an ordered society, Romans chapter 13. We owe uh, submission, 1 Peter chapter 2, as part of our witness in culture. And this word in the original language of the Bible, when it's used to talk about government or the military, means to put ourselves under the control of somebody else. Romans 13, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. 1 Peter chapter 2, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Now, I have to tell you that this word in the Bible, when I run into it, is not a word I like very much. This word submission, this verb submit, meaning I willingly defer to somebody else, it's just plain annoying, I gotta say. But here it is, plastered all over the Bible. This idea that we owe this kind of deference to authority. Police officer in a small town stopped a motorist who was speeding down Main Street. But officer, the man began, I can explain. Just be quiet, snapped the officer. I'm going to let you cool your heels in jail until the chief gets back. A few hours later, the officer looked in on his prisoner and said, It's lucky for you that the chief is at his daughter's wedding. He'll be in a good mood when he gets back. Don't count on it, said the man in the cell. I'm the groom. 
submitting to authorities. And then we owe taxes. We've already read the passages about that. And it's just a simple truism that as part of being participants in a culture and in a governing system, we owe taxes. I hate it, but it's true. What else do we owe the governing authorities? We owe them the truth. The Apostle Paul gives this governing paradigm for for Christian speech in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, where he says we are supposed to be people who speak the truth in love. Do you get it? There's two parts there. We speak the truth, not opinions, not preferences, and we, we always caveat our understanding of the truth about you know issues in our that surround us, issues related to government. We caveat with that with the, the, the realization that we always don't have the complete picture. But when we speak, we're supposed to speak truth. And when we speak truth, we're supposed to speak it in love. Love is, if you will, it's the accent that Christians are supposed to have with their speech. When I was living in the United Kingdom, even though I spoke a language that I thought we had in common, English, the minute I opened my mouth, they knew I was an American. How did they know that? By my accent. And when we speak, whether it's into issues of the culture or not, we're supposed to be people who speak the truth in love. And that's, we owe that. When we recognize a truth that has to be spoken, we should speak that truth, but we speak it in love. But for Christians, there are two important caveats about this. You and I, we have a unique privilege in a democracy to influence policy because in a democracy, the people are sovereign. You and I, together, are sovereign. And we also remember this. The state is always subordinate to God. There's a great story in the book of Acts, chapter 4. Peter and a buddy of his had been thrown in jail for preaching the gospel And they got released, were going to be released from jail on the condition that they didn't preach the gospel anymore. And what they say, what Peter say, he said, you know what? Do whatever you want to me. But if the state, the authorities are telling me to do something that is wrong, I'm going to do what God tells me to do. It's really interesting to me, this this democracy experiment we've been doing here in the United States of America for over 200 years. It seems to me that God took, it's like God, he took a, the baby, the, the welfare of the state, he took, it, uh, he took it and he took it from the hands of the king and he put it in the hands of you and me. That is a, in the truest sense of the word, that is an awesome responsibility. So Jesus says all these things. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And the Bible unpacks those things that we are due to give the government. But the real sting of Jesus' reply to these folks is in the last part of verse 17 because he says, give to God what is God's. Uh Uh-oh. What do we owe God? We owe him our existence. Psalm 139, verse 13. God, you created my inmost being. We owe the opportunity for a relationship with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. We are saved, which is a gift of God. 
We owe him our natural abilities and spiritual gifts. Romans chapter 12, verse 6, different gifts were given to each of us according to the grace of God. James chapter 4, excuse me, James chapter 1, we owe him every blessing that has ever come our way. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. We owe him everything. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I live my life as if I didn't owe God anything. Or I'm willing to give him little pieces of myself from time to time. Let's say this dollar bill is me. Not my complete net worth, but it's an illustration this morning. This is, this is me. And, and, and how do I interact with God in terms of what I owe him? Well, sometimes I'll say, all right, you can have that much of me. On other days, I might say, well, you can have that much of me. On those really bold days when I'm all in for Jesus, I'll give him that much. But I got to say, in my own life, it's the rare day when I really, truly say to God, you you get it all, Lord. You get it all because you gave it all. What do we owe God? What do Christians owe God? In short, we owe him everything. So have you done the math? Have you calculated what you owe the Lord? Have we acted on that understanding and that answer? I want you to think about that as Sally comes to lead us in our communion hymn because communion is going to remind us of what God did for us.